Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. tuned in to Sci-Fi Fidelity, the podcast that brings you monthly science fiction television discussions and interviews. Remember to follow Den of Geek on Twitter and Facebook at Den of Geek US, and we are at Sci-Fi Fidelity. This is episode 16 for April of 2017. My name is Mike. And I'm Dave, and in, in this edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity, we'll be talking about genre shows that we missed out on for one reason or another, and the shows that we have watched that we'll be discussing include I, Zombie on the CW, which began its third season on April 4th, and Humans, which recently wrapped up its second season on AMC. And we're very excited to share with you an interview with Des Dali, the showrunner of a great little anthology series on Hulu called Dimension 404, which also started on April 4th, on the same day as I, Zombie. In fact, we're recording this on April 4th, so it's a big day for television, and uh April is all the better for these new shows that are coming out. And we actually are inadvertently, I don't think we intended this when we first started putting all this together, talking about shows that we missed. And actually, iZombie is one of those shows that I originally missed. This is the first time I think that I've watched a show and caught up on it just to have it on the podcast. Right. And it is one that I've missed. And, and, you know, as we talk about it, that'll become clear. But, you know, I think just from reading and talking to people, obviously there are a lot of people whose opinions we both respect that really sing this show's praises. So at some point, I think I'm going to have to. Right. And meanwhile, you're going to be talking about a show we love to sing the praises of. That's Humans. And far too few people watch that show, I believe. And then uh, that will go along nicely with our main discussion topic. So before we get too far into it, let's go ahead and allow people to skip over segments that they want to skip for spoilery reasons or, or interest reasons. So here are the time codes for today's topics. Shows we missed. 230. I zombie. 1804. Humans. 2934. Death Dolly interview. 4854. All right, in our Super 6 discussion, we are talking about shows that we missed completely spoiler-free this segment, because, of course, we haven't seen these shows, <laughs> so we wouldn't be able to spoil them. But these are big shows that Dave and I, for whatever reason, even as big genre fans and podcasters, didn't get them on our radar. Maybe it, it became overwhelming to try and go back into the back catalog, a variety of reasons that kept us from watching these shows. And we're going to start off with a couple that may shock some people because we're going to start with the older shows and work our way forwards. But a couple of these, I think neither of us have watched. And I think that that's true for my first example, Dave. Babylon 5, have you seen any of that? Well, I have seen the pilot and the, and that's it. And it was somebody at school, again, talking it up. I thought, all right, I'll, I'll give it a look. And 
I guess it didn't grab me enough to keep going. But like you said, it is rather daunting how many episodes there are. Well, I think there's five seasons. Not too terrible, but they were larger seasons back then. 1994, this was my senior year of college when this came out. Because I remember sitting in the dorm rooms and everyone was so excited. Because J. Michael Straczynski, who of course has since made a big name for himself, not just from Babylon 5, but from Sense8, among other things. He had a five-year plan. Now, Nowadays, Dave, that's commonplace for showrunners to claim that they know exactly where it's going. I remember Simon Barry said that about Continuum. He had a seven-year plan, I believe, for that show that sadly only lasted four seasons. But this was one of the first times I ever remember hearing a showrunner, and of course the term showrunner even was not really de rigueur yet, that he knew exactly how it was going to end. And that had huge appeal for me and my geeky friends. <laughs> but despite that, you still didn't watch it. No. And th- that's what's so funny. I think I-, I would really be interested to hear the reaction of our listeners as we go through this segment. Are there gasps of horror when I admit that I <laughs> haven't seen Babylon 5? I don't know. Because first of all, it's right during the heyday of space dramas, Star Trek, The Next Generation and other things. And it was really in that vein. And, and went a whole different direction than the reboot that essentially the next generation was. But I read an article from the AV club where it said it really pioneered some of the special effects for the genre, especially space dramas. And with all the world building, all the different characters and their factions, all of the time spent building the sandcastle of what's expected on television, all of that gets knocked over and deconstructed and rebuilt. And it all makes sense as part of a larger coherent narrative. It is a success because its developments are organic and because of the lack of subtlety lets it and because the lack of subtlety lets it work at an archetypal level. So I really I think I do plan on watching this at some point, maybe in retirement (laughs) when I have time. But it's really something that set the stage for a lot of what came after. Well, you mentioned gasps of horror, and I think we've got enough shows that, uh, you you know, you guys out there better hold off on your gasps of horror because (laughs) you don't want to waste them so soon. Because the first show that I am going to point out that that I've never seen, although, again, this one I have seen the pilot, and that's, of course, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. (gasps) I know. I know. And and again, it's one that you've watched. (laughs) Yes, I loved that show. And, And, you know, I think one of the things about shows from the mid nineties or so is that you have to get past the production values because there's a certain look to them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I notice this with the X files all the time when I go back, but of course you just have to look past that. And, and for me, I mean, Sarah Michelle Geller is certainly engaging. And in the, in that first episode where they establish where she is, what she is, what she needs to do. And, One problem, Wayne and I talk about this all the time, and I'm sure you can relate. Anytime there's a show that's set in a high school, it gives us a little bit of pause because we're we're perhaps a little too hypercritical about (laughs) things that they they do and, and show. But that said, there are way too many people out there that rave about this show's writing and characters. Of course, Joss Whedon at the helm. So say no more. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, and personally, I'm still crazy about Eliza Dushku, who who plays Faith. And, you know, I've seen 10 minutes of an episode here, 10 minutes there, certainly out of order, don't really know what's going on. You know, <laughs> yeah. I know who Angel is, but I, I don't really know anything. But 
believe it or not, I've listened to Dusted, which is one of the more well-known, well-respected Buffy podcasts. Even though I don't watch the show, it's just that the hosts were so good <laughs> that I guess I started listening to it to get inspiration to watch Buffy, but also to to get inspiration as a podcaster as well. So at some point, I'm going to have to go back and watch that. I've seen the pilot, although I'm going to need to see it again. So Buffy's my number one need to see. Right. And, and I have to say Babylon 5 also apparently does suffer from production value problems during season one. So yeah, it's tough to get through that. But yeah, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, one of the first shows I watched from beginning to end when it aired and uh, really enjoyed that show. And since I saw that one, I'm going to now share a show that I have not seen, but you have. And that's Stargate SG-1, which began in 1997 on Showtime. So I'm going up a few years. It came to sci-fi in 2002. They actually picked it up right when it was getting ready to be canceled. And boy, what a great thing it was for the sci-fi channel, which brought that network to the forefront during the pre-Battlestar Galactica days. And a lot of people think that the Stargate franchise should have just kept going in perpetuity, just uh, churning it out because it was such a juggernaut, not just 10 seasons of SG one, but Atlantis and universe and all the other, there was an animated series and two direct DVD movies. And you talk about daunting 10 seasons of, I believe 22 episodes each. (laughs) Yeah. That's going to take me a while. Now you did binge watch it though. Didn't you? you? I did. Now it took me over a year to, to, to watch it all, but I stuck with it, you know, an episode or two almost every other day, you know, and then the movies, of course. So and and as I've said a few times lately, I'm halfway through season two of Stargate Universe. All right. So you're almost finished with the whole run. No, I haven't seen Atlantis yet okay. other than the pilot. But uh, it did break X-Files longest sci-fi series record before Supernatural beat that record. So 10 seasons was definitely a long time for a show to be on the air. So I think I will probably watch an episode here and there. I probably think uh, just like Supernatural, in fact, I don't think Supernatural should have been on this list, actually, too. It's just too many episodes. I would love to watch it. There's just too many episodes. All right. Well, I tried to withhold my gasps of horror that you haven't seen SG-1, and now you can (laughs) withhold your gasps of horror that I've not seen Star Trek The Next Generation, which just aired in that period of my life when I wasn't watching television because I just simply didn't have time to watch television. Now, again, like the other shows I've mentioned where I've seen the pilot, I've actually seen the first four episodes of Star Trek Next Generation. and I've tried to, on a couple of occasions, keep going. And for whatever reason, I just didn't bond with any of the characters. And Jean-Luc Picard, I get how well-respected he is in the Star Trek community, but he just doesn't do it for me. And, and I guess like a lot of shows, I'm told, no, you have to give it a chance. You know, his character develops. He's not as as brash as I felt he is at the beginning of the series. So somewhere down the road, again, there's a lot of seasons, a lot of episodes. I've seen 10 minutes here, 10 minutes there, because reruns are on BBC America all the time. However, there is Q. Oh, yeah. Who I love. Oh, my gosh. That was my favorite character back in the day. Right. So I know how important that series is, not only to the Star Trek franchise, but to sci-fi space 
odysseys as well. So I know I've been remiss, but at some point I will get to it. Well, it's getting to the point where Star Trek and perhaps Stargate and Babylon 5 as well are so far into the lexicon of what we do as podcasters that as an English teacher, you always talk about having the references to understand illusions. And boy, is that true for these shows, even Buffy for that matter. So I don't know, Dave, someday. Yeah, someday. But now we're going to we're going to go to some currently airing shows that Dave and I have not seen. Now, I think we probably have mentioned this before, so this may not come as a big surprise, but my example is one that Dave has seen, and that's Game of Thrones. I have not seen anything other than the pilot. My wife and I sat down to watch it. We just weren't drawn into it, but I have every reason to enjoy it. I like political dramas that are in the fantasy genre, so I should like it. I just, I don't know, I guess I just missed it. And maybe I'm just too far into discovering hidden gems that I didn't want to go with something mainstream, but I do regret it. I do regret not keeping up with Game of Thrones. I mean, heck, I read Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time, which has a similar flavor to the world building. And at least Robert Jordan churns out novels a little bit faster than (laughs) George R.R. Martin does. But I don't know. I, I... do think that someday I will have to watch Game of Thrones, perhaps after it's off the air. But I just feel a little bit regretful that I have not kept up with it. Well, you know, and you mentioned the concept of world building, and certainly that's a big part of the show. And, you know, fortunately, the seasons are not terribly long. So there is that built in advantage if you ever do want to get to the show. True. It also, I think, is that show that's really established something that I think other showrunners have picked up on. And that is the concept, the idea that no character is safe. And when you think about what it's done for us as viewers, it's just pretty remarkable because the end of season one, I'm not going to spoil it, but those of you that have watched the show know what I'm talking about. Talk about gasps. You know, Buffy the Vampire Slayer did that too. No one's safe from Joss Whedon, but I guess the same could be true of Game of Thrones. So, all right. Well, speaking of not being safe, my show and the and the final <laughs> uh, show of our big six tonight is for me The Walking Dead. And I'll say right up front, I'm not a zombie fan. If you're a listener of Sci-Fi TV Rewatch, you know that Wayne bullied me into a month of zombie films, including World War Z, 28 Days Later, Shaun of the Dead, all of which I kind of enjoyed. But The Walking Dead is a different animal. I've tried watching the pilot literally at least three times, and I can't get more than 20 minutes into it because it's just so violent. It's so gore filled. And from what I understand, and again, you can't help sometimes when you're turning channels, it seems like that never really goes away. And, and people that I've talked to tell me that, yes, you're right. It really doesn't. But I also know enough to understand that that's not what the show's really about. It's like any good genre show. It's about the characters. It's about how they cope with their surroundings. It's how they cope with what's facing them in these life and death situations to struggle to survive But it just seems as if no matter when I turn it on, somebody's head's getting blown off by a shotgun. 
<laughs> yeah. And it's just not my thing. And I don't know. I mean, I'm covering Robert Kirkman's Outcast for Den of Geek, which is uh, actually just started in the UK yesterday. And while that's certainly a horror show, it just doesn't have the gore. So I don't know. I, I can't really see myself ever going and watching The Walking Dead, even though I feel as if I really should. Well, that's interesting because I think the list as we were first making it were like shows that we regretted not having seen. And yeah, I think I'm with you that I don't really plan on watching the walking dead. And it's, it's strange for me to say that considering I read the comics long before there was even talk of a TV show and really enjoyed it, really enjoyed those comics. So I'm not exactly sure what it would take to get me to watch the walking dead of the six that we talked about. I have, I've seen only two of the six. So uh, the walking dead is, is one of them that I, probably will not put high on the list of shows to catch up on. Right. I've only seen two of the six as well, Stargate and Game of Thrones. So. <laughs> That's funny. So we have a lot of overlap. But there are some honorable mentions that I do want to mention that I feel should be given the treatment of of catching up on at some point. And one of them is The Last Ship on TNT. Heard so many good things about it. It's not that long. It's not that daunting. You know, if we're watching shows like Colony on USA Network, why wouldn't we watch a show like The Last Ship on TNT? It's the same kind of tier, wouldn't you agree? Well, I would. I guess I guess I'm a little put off by the whole virus apocalypse oh, okay. <laughs> idea. And I understand that's, you know, what what it's all about here. But Firefly fans, I mean, you get to see Jane as a respected naval officer, so there is that. <laughs> yeah, so I I think we probably could add that as a seventh to our list, but I also had to give an honorable mention to Doctor Who because I always shock people by telling them that I'm only up to season five <gasps> of Doctor Who <laughs> as a time travel fan. That's just a travesty, but maybe you guys out in the audience there have shows that you never really saw that you regret not having seen, and so hopefully you can sympathize with our plight there, but that's our Super Six topic for today, and I think it's fun because I think uh, in future months, we're also going to be talking about shows that you shouldn't miss or that maybe slipped under your radar, that kind of thing, Un unsung heroes and, and shows like that. So looking forward to those discussions as well. But I agree with you, Dave. I'm not a big zombie fan. And yet the show I'm going to be talking about is iZombie on the CW. And it's not really a zombie show. It's a, it's got zombies at its core, but I had heard so many things about the show and how great it was. And there's a lot of things in the background that make it a show that I should be watching. There's no reason I shouldn't be except for the fact that it has zombies in it. And I so regret making that preconception because there couldn't be a show that's farther from the zombie apocalypse monsters coming at you, wanting to eat your brains type of show. It's just basically its own unique animal. Now, how much do you know about this show? Well, I mean, I know enough that the main character is a medical examiner who, as long as she has brains to eat, she basically is able to fly under the radar as a zombie. That's right. <laughs> but there's a lot of background that it, had I really delved deeper into it, I think I would have maybe picked it up. First of all, the showrunner is Rob Thomas. And when I first became a teacher, Dave and I uh, are both English teachers. I became a librarian later on. 
But when I first started teaching English, Rob Thomas was an author who was a former teacher before he started uh, writing of a book called Rats Saw God, a book that I loved. I just loved young adult literature at the time. I taught seventh grade and I actually became a librarian because of the book stuff. And his book, among many others, were a real draw for me. So that's one reason I should have gone towards it. And yes, we do have flying objects all around our library because he is that (laughs) kind of librarian, by the way. (laughs) Yes. But uh, Rob Thomas is also responsible for Veronica Mars, which is another show that I love. And that's something I guess I just hadn't put two and two together. And the humor of Veronica Mars, I mean, seems to be prevalent in iZombie as well, has got to have Rob Thomas at its core. So definitely should have picked up on this. Um, What we know so far about this show is that Liv Moore, like you said, promising resident. She went to a boat party where there was some drug use. And Julian Stark, I mean, David Anders (laughs) scratched her and she became a zombie. Because she became a zombie, she turned away her fiance, quit her job, became a coroner's assistant where she has this steady supply of brains, like you mentioned. But the cool thing is that when she eats the brains, she actually takes on part of the personality of that person and has visions of their death that allows her to solve the crime. Now, you might think, oh, that's awfully procedural. In fact, it reminded me a little bit when I first started picking it up of True Calling, the show with Eliza Dushku. You mentioned her earlier. Yeah. You you caught some of that, right? True Calling? Uh, No, that's on my list. And oh, I'm ashamed to admit that because she's in it, I still haven't seen it. Well, in that one, she had visions that helped her solve crimes. and, And she worked in the Emmy's office, I believe. But some of the people who just make this show great, it's such an ensemble cast, not just Rose McIver, who plays Liv Moore, but also... Ravi, the medical examiner who knows her secret from the very first episode, and he's working on a cure. And I'll tell you, this guy is the comic relief that every show wishes it has. He is just the perfect deliverer of one-liners and quips. (laughs) So I, I just love it that this show never goes into the camp humor, which I'm not a huge fan of. And Ravi is a huge part of that. Okay, well, you know, you're talking about zombies, and and it just seems my experience with the zombie movies that Wayne and I looked at, there was some sort of virus at the core. So what's the deal here? Yeah, exactly. Ravi working on a cure implies that it's a virus to be cured, and there certainly is a lot of play on that. It seems to have come from a combination of this energy drink called Max Rager and the tainted drug called Utopium. A mixture of these two at the boat party was what caused the zombieism. And it's really a great play because you can go at it from the utopium angle with drug dealers and crime, or you can come at it from the energy drink. There's a huge plot line in season two that follows Max Rager, and they're developing an even more powerful energy drink called Supermax that makes zombies and others even more crazy and hyped up. So. The cure is a big part of it. In fact, cure number one used on Blaine and Major earlier on in the series gives them this zombie detecting powers after they're cured of being zombies. But it being fatal in the long term is a huge part of season two. And where it ends up, of course, is them having to avoid death, but also go back to being zombies. So as a result, uh, Major, who's played by Robert Buckley, who shows up in the Dimension 404 series that we have our interview topic today about, he just keeps being reinvented. He goes from zombie hunter to zombie and then back again. 
And in fact, in season three, the premiere that's airing this week, he's reinvented again as some type of soldier. So I uh, can't wait to see where his character goes. But now, now, does that get to be, I don't want to say a bit silly, but no, the, oddly, the fact that he's going back and forth. You would think, but it doesn't. <laughs> and you, what else you would think would get kind of tiresome is the procedural element of the show. And in fact, Clive, who's the homicide detective that Liv works with, he relies on her visions, doesn't know where they come from. He, he just thinks she's psychic. You know, the case of the week, you would think it's going to get bogged down by that, but it never is. It always contributes to the larger story. I think the only problem was that Clive was then relegated to only being the procedural guy and really not participating in the mythology of the show or the relationships in the show. In fact, we knew virtually nothing about him for most of season one and two. We're just starting to get some glimpses of his life now. Now, do most of the episodes include some element of the overall arcs that are going on? Yeah, they always push it forward. And I think that's probably a key to success of any genre show that tries to cross over into mainstream procedurals or things like that. And and I think they do it quite well, but you know, even the supporting characters like Peyton played by Ali Machaka, one of my favorite characters just cause she's super hot, but also just a great character as a confidant and roommate for Liv. And she learns the secret late in season one and is returning to the fold in season two, having felt betrayed for a little while. And I'm glad that happened. And then of course, Blaine, the zombie supplier cured by Liv moves on to become a mortician so that he can get brains from his funeral victims and uh drug kingpin for a while until cure number two that Ravi comes up with actually erases his memory, which was a very interesting little device carrying us into season three. But what's different this season, Dave, is really surprising. I would love to hear longtime iZombie fans reaction to this premiere that just happened this week because everything has been tossed on its head with the introduction of the Fillmore Graves security company, whatever it is, their larger umbrella is they've now taken center stage. And I liken it to in, you mentioned Buffy, the vampire slayer earlier, angel had a season where it all took place in Wolfram and Hart, which was like a demon run law firm. And this Fillmore graves, guess what? run by zombies. <laughs> all the soldiers are zombies. All the executives are zombies. And they're trying to create a better world for zombie kind. I mean, it's basically like completely changed the paradigm of the show. Well, if there is a cure available, because you, you mentioned her curing Blaine, do some of these zombies just not want to be cured? Well, that's an interesting point because although the cure is in scarce supply because they need that tainted utopium. They need that max rager in order to make the combination. What's in short supply is the tainted utopium, but it does become something for live where it is now defined her as a character, as a person. She doesn't necessarily want to go back to that type a personality, always having to be little miss perfect that she was when she was a med student. Now she's kind of become this crime fighter crime solver because of her visions. And I think she would be reluctant to take the cure if it was offered to her, other than the fact that she always has to put hot sauce on everything to taste, <laughs> to be able to taste any food at all, much less brains. So, but you know, I, I think that's an interesting dynamic where zombie hood becomes a desired state for some people. And 
it becomes a story about discrimination against zombie kind. And will the humans understand us once they realize we're among them or will the apocalypse begin? Yeah. But at least initially in season three, we are seeing a little bit less procedural just as we were at the end of season two. It probably will settle back in with the twist though, that now Clive knows the nature of Liv's visions. And that just happened at the end of season two. So I'm wondering if there are going to be now too many people that know about zombies or no live secret in particular. But uh, one of the side effects of that, in fact, is that we got introduced to Liv's family in season two in season one and two. She kind of pissed them off through no fault of her own, not being able to give her brother a blood transfusion because of her zombie blood. And we have never seen them again. It's like they've just fallen off the map. Maybe they just thought that that wasn't a story worth revisiting, but it does seem rather strange. So, so the fact that there are zombies out there, this is common knowledge in, you know, the world in, in which I zombie takes place. No, unfortunately, no, but I think it can't be long before that is the, the case, especially with the introduction of Fillmore Graves, a great little play on words, by the way, <laughs> just like live more, uh, is that how many zombies can there be before people notice? And is there going to be a new direction for the show in which zombies become known to the public? But I can't really predict it. I came to it very quickly. I binge watched it over the past couple of months and have really become a fan of the show. And um, I'm glad that I have to give a shout out to Kevin Batchelder who really pushed the show uh, hard. And I realized that there was no reason I shouldn't follow his advice on this one. So uh, really great show and definitely recommend it, especially since season three is such a different animal altogether. Well, you know, you, you talk about recommending and, and obviously that's kind of what we do as, as podcasters, as TV reviewers for Den of Geek. And certainly, you know, we're like this at work and we push shows. And certainly one of the first ones that we pushed was Continuum. I've been pushing the hundred as I know you have. And the show I'm pushing now is, of course, humans. And for so many reasons, not the least of which is that the seasons are short and they're not daunting, yet they're so dense. Now, this is a show that's seasons air initially on Britain's Channel 4 and then subsequently appear on AMC, which just concluded season two. Right. And they started season two long after the UK had finished season two. Oh, and we should also mention just got renewed for season three. Yes. (laughs) So what we know about this show is that David Elster has created these synths who appear completely human. Again, think Cylons, but just a touch below Cylons because they have the green eyes to set them apart. And there's just something that's a little bit off about them. But like most technology, the idea or so we thought was that they were invented to help the human race. Of course, that's not exactly the case in this show. Well, yeah, it's interesting that everything that comes up in the show with regard to them being servants of the human race creates the morality issues that are the core of the show. Right. Exactly. You know, what rights does a synth have if said synth gains consciousness? And then of course, what is consciousness? So, so we follow David Elster's children, 
so to speak. Leo, his human, and as it turns out, human synth hybrid son, uh, Mia. The f- As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. First synth to gain consciousness, Max, who becomes the group's leader after Fred's death. Niska, who comes to hate humans after her stint in a brothel. And we see her commit murder. I think that's probably the first synth that we see that. D.I. Karen Voss, who we learn was a direct replacement for Elster's dead wife. And then, of course, Fred, who was the big brother created for Leo. So we learn that David Elster really started this as, I don't want to necessarily say a vanity project, but rather, I guess, to fill a hole in his own life. Isn't, isn't that interesting? Because season two, as it goes along reveals that the new innovators are trying to do the same thing on a larger scale with the, with the child. Exactly. (laughs) So, so what we know so far, Niska is in Berlin and she has a portable drive with all of Dr. Elster's work on it. And we see in her character that she's preoccupied with the philosophy of, of creating life. And then the next thing you know, she releases the code to the network and and this is i guess this this part we just take the leap it's like okay whatever but it clearly impacts synths in the city now not all but it's as if suddenly some have become sentient at least to the point of questioning who or what they are and as max says now you think and feel just as a human so right away we say okay this is going to have really significant consequences, which, which of course it does, but also what we see in season two is this human synth relationship begin developing in a number of couples. You know, we talk about shipping in genre shows all the time, sometimes with positive results, sometimes with negative, but I think here, as you said, there are so many moral, ethical issues that this show explores, and certainly that's one way that they do it in this show. And you're specifically talking about Pete and Karen. Where else does it show up? 
Well, it, it shows up with uh, Mia and Ed oh, right. later on, right? I forgot and, about them just because that fell off the radar and changed Mia in such a huge way. Right. And then, of course, with Hester and Leo oh, that's later true. on. And I was right. thinking just with Niska and her girlfriend. Right. That's another one. So you mentioned Niska, and she's begun a relationship with a human woman in Berlin who is really starting to like Niska. You see their relationship really developing, but it's obvious that Niska has not opened up about herself. And you think, well, of course, how could she? But then, unlike zombies being <laughs> you know commonplace in iZombie, synths are commonplace, and, and we know from season one that there are sexual synths, that that's what they were constructed for, so... You know, a human having sex with a synth is not unheard of, but it doesn't seem as if Astrid knows about this yet. One of my favorite parts of season two is is Astrid's reaction when she finds out what Niska really is. Ah, right. Wonderful. And in terms of how this season is different, we really get the idea of conscious synthetics explored on so many levels. And, and Hester is a newly awakened synth as, as a result of Niska putting the information into the network. And unfortunately for Hester, her lack of experience and nurturing immediately becomes clear because it's almost as if she's never been around people. And for the most part, she hasn't. Of course, there are some humans that work as foremen in the factory in which she was a, a worker, but it's almost as if she has to learn to exist around humans, and she doesn't do it all that well, you know? Well, in fact, I thought that all newly awakened synths were going to act like Hester. So when I first started watching season two, I thought, this is going to be a problem because all of David Elster's family had each other to nurture before they went out into the world, and these newly awakened synths don't have that. But I really think that Hester's experience does seem unique, especially once Max starts building his own little family on the train. But because of the treatment, perhaps, of the factory workers, that, once she became sentient, informed her, quote-unquote, childhood experience, and she became this traumatized well, sociopath, almost. Right, and, and that whole idea of humans mistreating the synth workers you know, is kind of at the core of this rebellious nature that Hester has, and you certainly can relate to it because, you know, we see some of the physical and emotional abuse that is inflicted on them. But another thing that's different in season two, and maybe, no, no maybes about it. One of the highlights is the introduction of Carrie Ann Moss as artificial intelligence scientist, Dr. Morrow. And we move across the pond to San Francisco where she works. Oh my gosh. It was a great touch as well, because between her and Milo and David Elster, you have three very different approaches from people who are trying to fill a void in their lives by way of the synths. Right. She's obviously the leading scientist in this artificial intelligence community. And Milo Curry is this multi-billionaire who wants her to work for him, but, but immediately it's clear there's a conflict of ethics between the two and she thinks his research is frivolous. Although at this point at the beginning of season two, she doesn't really understand 
what it is he wants to do. And of course, that that comes a little later. And we'll talk about that in a few minutes. Well, I'm wondering, when is it that she starts to realize the ethical concerns of trying to get her AI into the body of a conscious synth? Because immediately they start dying off. Does she feel bad about that right away? Or is she just so desperate? Well, I think she's kind of desperate. I mean, you know, we are privy to her artificial intelligence V that we experience only through her laptop or her, uh, I guess, her her mainframes when she's, uh, you know, in her lab. But I think what really comes out here is, is this whole examination of what it means to be a person. And I think she doesn't feel as if Milo cares about that at all. And I think she's right. <laughs> and, and exactly. She is right. Some of the more advanced ones like Max and Niska have, have risen to this higher level of consciousness. And for whatever reason, I guess we could argue that perhaps Niska, because she was essentially a prostitute, that perhaps she got to know that darker side of human nature. And yeah. it, it, it certainly molded her uh, to, to be the, the person that she is here. I'm calling her a person. Well, just like Hester. I mean, I think they were shaped by their experiences. But how brave then for her to take center stage in trying and failing, ultimately, to get the humans to acknowledge her as someone who deserves a trial, just like a human would. Right. Now, you know, season one, we followed the Hawkins family quite a bit, and certainly they're an integral part of season two. But what I find most fascinating is that their teenage daughter, Maddie, oh yeah, has really become prominent in where we're headed into season three. She's what's known as a headcracker. Uh, somebody that has the computer wherewithal to go inside these synths and then tamper with their programming. But you know, I mentioned earlier about the human synth relationships. And, and, you know, you, of course, mentioned Pete and Karen, and they actually try to forge a life together. They're, they're living together. And she has clearly been in her skin, so to speak longer than the others because she comes across as being most natural. Oh yeah. And it's great to see her go back and forth between Karen and her natural self. And it's really interesting to go back and listen to the Ruth Bradley interview. I don't know if you've done that, Dave, since we saw humans, it's really kind of fun to hear her try to navigate our questions, not knowing what we now know about the rest of season two. <laughs> right. And, and, and then of course, Ed and Mia, you know, Mia, who was working in the household of the Hawkins family, but, you know, for a number of reasons has, has left, although, you know, they haven't cut off all contact, but she's working in a diner with this guy, Ed, who's having financial difficulties. And for her, you know, there's that, that bond that's developed between the two. And, and certainly he feels it as well, but with her, as opposed to Hester and Leo, I think with Hester, it is purely sexual. She wants to experience sex mm -hmm. and she does with Leo. She has a crush an infatuation. And with Ed and Mia, I, I think it's a little bit more than that. Yeah. Now, the other thing that's kind of fascinating is we see humans that pretend to be a synth. Yeah. I wasn't sure what to think about this at first, but I really like how it ended up. <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, at this point, it's like the teenagers and you wonder, okay, how long is it going to be before adults behave the same way? So, well, I love that they bring it about as it's a way for them to 
not have to confront whatever's going wrong in their lives. Exactly. Right. Now, you know, you mentioned Niska who wants to go on trial in a human court. Uh, she has killed somebody and she basically surrenders herself. And, you know, it's not really clear what she thinks is going to happen. Does she think she's going to beat the charge? I don't think she thinks she's going to beat the charge. I think she thinks that if they have a trial, then they will have set the precedent of having treated a conscious synth as a human being. And so whether or not she goes to jail is immaterial. Okay. So she's willing to take one for the team, so to speak, which, which is certainly noble. And Laura Hawkins, who's a lawyer defends her. And it's, and it's interesting to see how the legal system treats this, which at the beginning, almost as if it's a joke, right? But Laura kind of crystallizes the whole thing when she says they're out there, meaning the sense, and we need to bring them into our moral universe. Yeah. And I almost thought she was going to succeed once she brought in Astrid. And oh, what a great scene it was where Niska was completely emotionless while she was watching all the horrific things on the screen. And she was you know, dispassionately saying, wait, you expect me to react based on things that have nothing to do with my personal experience? showing how different synths see the world. Yet as soon as she sees Astrid, her face just kind of scrunches up in pain and regret. Right. Now, if you're a fan of travelers, you're certainly going to be a fan of this other concept that we're introduced to, because in addition to creating these synths that have personalities programmed into them, we also learn about consciousness transference. Milo raises the idea with Dr. Morrow, but you know, she's been secretly working on it and he finds out, calls her out on it. She tells him it's possible to put a human consciousness into a synth body, but it has to be the right synth. She mentions David Elster's original synths, uh, Max, uh, Mia and the others that she suspects are out there hiding. So now we're, we're in a whole other realm of, morals and ethics right can you supplant a conscious being with another conscious being just because the one is human and the other is not right now you kind of alluded to milo's secret true agenda and that is that he wants to construct conscious synth children now on the one hand dr morrow has found out about this plan But we also find out that she's built a simulation of her dead daughter's brain and that her computer V is actually her daughter, Ginny. Yeah. So it's not too far off the mark. Right. But what we also love is the fact that and and we've certainly seen this in science fiction before, is that it seems as if her version has learned and adapted along the way. And now we don't know what the plan is. I mean, does she want to take her daughter's consciousness and put it into a synth body that looks just like her daughter, the way Dr. Elster did with Karen? Oh yeah. I definitely think that's what she wants. But interestingly, I think they left a loose end on purpose that suggests that Ginny is out there in the interwebs. (laughs) You know, she doesn't have a body, so she could be one of these ghosts in the machine type deals. Right. Now, Milo's plan is for these conscious 
sent children. And we find out that there are already 12 out there, I guess, as a field test yeah. is, is the way it comes across. Then he threatens her that he owns Jenny, you know, because she balks at, at following through with this. But what he wants to do is sell synth children to couples that can't have children or have suffered a loss. So we're in these, I don't even want to say murky ethical areas because they're muddy. Oh my gosh, yes. And and the direction that one of those children takes Karen, a very dark direction, considering the parallels that it plays with David Elster's wife and her children, how it kind of parallels their experience. And then at the last minute, the reprieve, because uh, Karen finds a different purpose, let's say. Right. Now, I just want to highlight a couple of items about a couple of the different characters. And Hester is one because, you know, she's asking these difficult questions as Max tries to teach her ethics. But because of her background being mistreated by her supervisors, it's really difficult for her to deal with that and accept what he's trying to teach her. And she brings up essentially what we've come to know as the uncanny valley. Mm-hmm. Is it because we look like them? And I think it is. I think it is as well. And then lastly, I mentioned her at the beginning of the segment, and that is teenage Maddie Hawkins, who is this computer genius. I don't think there's anything else we can say. And she's taken the code from Niska, which was by her definition, immature. And she sped it up and she can now make any synth conscious immediately. So when Maddie realizes she can send the code and save Mia, but what it's going to mean is every synth in the world will become conscious and sentient. She has pause and and rightly so, but you know, she, she can't do it until Max asks her to look at the other conscious synths in their new home, which, you know, is this like little train car or something. And Maddie, I I think she sees that they're just like us and she sends the code out and that's how the season ends. So season three, we assume is going to open with (laughs) worldwide synth awakening, which is awesome. Yeah. Talk about paradigm shifts. Season three of humans sounds like season three of (laughs) iZombie. Definitely a a big difference going on in the third season. And, you know, that's typically where shifts happen in series. Uh, if they're given a chance. So yeah, humans can't recommend it enough. We've said it many times. And if you think Westworld was good, I think humans does an even better job, almost on par with some of the great stuff that that more popular show does. Right. I mean, like you said, if you're interested in artificial consciousness, the idea of what does it mean to be a person and you get that out of Westworld, you really have to give humans a shot. Right. And as we go into our interview segment, interestingly, Dimension 404, the very opening episode of this show, (laughs) doesn't deal with artificial intelligence, but does deal with the nature of consciousness with clones. So if you uh, get a chance to see Hulu's new anthology series, Dimension 404, it also just dropped on April 4th because, you know, Dimension 404, April 4th, (laughs) appropriately dated. And we spoke with Des Dolly, the executive producer and showrunner of this series. And although it reminds us a little bit of the best aspects of The Twilight Zone and Black Mirror, 
and other self-contained episode shows that came before it, this six-episode offering really has its own unique spin. And so Des is going to tell us all about it. Let's go to our interview that we had with him last week to hear about Dimension 404. The subject of this month's interview segment is Des Dali, the founder of Rocket Jump, which masterminded such digital gems as Video Game High School, available on YouTube, and of course the Rocket Jump Film School, which I've actually used my, myself many times in the high school video production class that I teach. So now Hulu has signed Des and his cronies to produce this anthology series, Dimension 404, with its self-contained Twilight Zone-esque stories, exploring the dark and comedic side of cyberspace. Welcome to Sci-Fi Fidelity, Des Dolly. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Really happy to be here. Now, is that an accurate description? I think it's safe to say it does pay somewhat tribute to Twilight Zone because you're not really shy about tapping directly into that sense of nostalgia, especially considering that opening voiceover that Mark Hamill does leading into the narration at the beginning of each episode. Was that a purposeful modernization or tribute or mashup of that show with Outer Limits and maybe even a little Black Mirror sprinkled in for good measure? I would say that your description is quite apt. And our influences are definitely worn on our sleeve. I would go so far <laughs> as to say that we didn't necessarily want to nostalgically recreate one of those shows. I just think that by nature of my fellow writers and I being so heavily influenced by Outer Limits and Twilight Zone and, gosh, even Night Gallery reruns when we were kids that yeah. we just couldn't shake it. Now, Michael is the one that turned me on to Rocket Jump, and, and obviously your presence on YouTube with nearly 8 million subscribers really uh, has allowed Rocket Jump to take off. And you and Freddie Wong and Matt Arnold easily could have stayed comfortable and, and successful in that sphere. So why make the jump to Hulu? And can you walk us through how that occurred? I mean, did they approach you or did you go to them? Well, you're, you're very astute in assuming that with all of our YouTube riches, we could have just sat comfortably <laughs> in our own little digital space. No, look, quite frankly, we those guys and I, we met at USC Film School, and we went there because of a shared want and need for making Hollywood features and television shows. And we used the YouTube platform as a means to that end. And very smartly, to my partner, uh, Freddie's credit, we're able to build an audience there. And then we were able to use that audience as, I guess you could say, guaranteed butts and seats so we could take meetings with more traditional media platforms like a Hulu. For us, it's all about making great things. And we just want as many people to watch and enjoy as possible. And lucky for us, Hulu loved the concept and they provide an outlet outside of our normal YouTube ecosystem that gives people access access to the show. Now, we've enjoyed the first three episodes, and uh, you've now touched on clones, alien invasion, and time travel. But some of these episodes are satirical and scary, while others are fun and mind-bending. So are you hoping to hit all the different genres at one time or another, and is there a common thread that ties the series together as a whole? Yes, absolutely. We definitely made sure that in our first season, we were offering a little something for everyone. We wanted to touch upon multiple subgenres within this horror sci-fi hybrid. But I would say the overall thread that ties them together is the theme of fun, funniness, and weirdness. And at their heart, they're all about real characters 
searching for something, searching for meaning and understanding in a changing world where culture and technology is evolving at a rate at which it is nearly impossible to keep up. So all of our stories certainly start in a place of reality. They're all grounded in a sense of realism. And then those characters experience that fun hook, that Twilight Zone-esque twist. And that's where the story gets started. You know, uh, I can't quite put my finger on it, but Matchmakers has this not quite real look to it, while Cinethrax obviously involves a lot more special effects work. I mean, how do you approach designing the look for each episode, or do you leave that up to the director? Well, there's a combination of both. We certainly had a lookbook for the show overall, and that was put together with our producing team and our production designer, Scott Falconer. But then, yes, each individual director was given enough freedom to create their own world. And speaking specifically to the point of Matchmaker, it has a heightened sense of surrealism in the first half of the episode because it is Adam's manufactured reality. So we thought, okay, this this look serves the story in so much as something should feel off. And we don't quite know what it is until we reach that midpoint turn. So there is an overall look of cohesiveness to the series as a whole that all of our cinematographers and our production designer work together to create as long as it served each individual story. All right. Well, one of the things that I noticed right off the bat as we sat down to watch these episodes is that there's a lot of recognizable faces for genre fans, including Patton Oswalt, Robert Buckley, Lee Michelle, Sarah Hyland, Ashley Rickards, and others. Does this anthology format lend itself well to casting some of these big one-off appearances that's certain to draw in viewers? And can you tease who else we might see in the second half of the season? I would, to answer your question, just out of sheer logistics, yes, absolutely. It's certainly a lot easier for someone like Patton Oswalt to commit to uh, half a week's worth of work as opposed to a season commitment where production would take place over the course of many, many weeks. So we are incredibly lucky in that regard that when we're reaching out to talent, we're only asking for small commitments with really high yield for us. Um, some of the folks you might see in later episodes are um, just to tease individuals like Ryan Lee, who you might know from some of J.J. Uh, Abrams' work, um, let's see who else. Lorenza Izzo is the star of our Impulse episode. Uh, of course, Megan Mullally of um, all sorts of acclaim uh, you will see in our episode, Bob. All right, great. <laughs> now, there's a great behind-the-scenes video where Rocket Jump employees are auditioning to do the opening credits voiceover, but obviously that honor eventually went to Mark Hamill. H- how did that come about? And I mean, it has to be a Star Wars geek's dream come true. Dream Come True doesn't even begin to cover it. I mean, yes, absolutely. That was one of the most exciting days of my life, hearing that he not only agreed to do the show, but was actually really super excited about it. This wasn't just a, you know some one-off paid gig for him. It was a He informed us a, a real passion for him to be associated with uh, an anthology show, him being a fan of Twilight Zone when he was a kid. I mean, what the process took many years as we evolved what the wraparound element of the show would be. At one point, it was this really interesting, exciting, adventurous, but somewhat convoluted separate plot featuring this artificial robot, basically a digital crypt keeper, if you will, that was recanting all of these stories from the multiverse. It was a lot of fun putting it together, but we realized very early on that 
it started to detract from the, the stories and the themes of the stories themselves. So we really pulled back and just distilled it. And it became for us an opportunity to set the tone and a little thematic table setting and just let the stories be what they may. And of course, always we had been discussing for the years now we were in development, whose voice that could be. And we always kick things around the room. I have to admit, we never dreamed as big as Mark Hamill. So <laughs> when that name was floated our way, it just made sense. It has the timber of his voice, the idea of the character itself being this omniscient artificial intelligence that has seen things all across the universe. It just makes sense with Mark's cinematic persona. And I mean, gosh, just knowing uh, all, all the folks that are fans of him and myself personally, I very selfishly left at the opportunity to work with him. Now, with the first three episodes coming all at once on April 4th, and then the others are going to be doled out over the next few weeks, you've kind of appealed, or maybe this was Hulu's decision, to appeal to binge watchers initially, and then also to those who like episodic content equally. What are the advantages that you see to both methods of distribution? Are you excited about this, the way it's being uh, handled? I am excited. I think that this split release offers the best of both worlds for folks who are looking for a little bit of both. I personally am a fan of event television, and that is the type of show that Dimension 404 is. Each episode is, in a sense, its own mini-movie, and we approach these as pieces of cinema. So I think it's really cool that we're going to give everyone an opportunity to binge a few of these episodes right up front. And then we're basically teasing them by saying, look, this, you enjoy it, right? Well, you're going to have to come back next Tuesday. Hold <laughs> on, wait and see what weird twists and turns are around the bend. Um, you know, I, I think it's safe to say that, that we are in a golden age of genre television. Uh, what do you like to watch when you get a chance? God, when I get a chance, that's the question. Um, <laughs> God. You know, I'm obviously a fan of anthology. I grew up, you know, having cable television as a babysitter. So I ingest about anything and everything. Obviously a big genre fan. Unfortunately, I don't get to watch a lot of TV, or at least not in the last two years while we've been in production on the show. But I've certainly fallen into the serialized format in the last few years. Well, shoot, ever since Sopranos. So I like those big budget dramas, but my partners and I really felt a need for genre anthology. We went into development on this three years ago. The only anthology on TV was American Horror Story, of which I'm a huge fan, but we wanted something more episodic in the style of Outer Limits or Twilight Zone. So I'm really excited that there are all these other episodic anthology shows coming out now, like your Black Mirrors, and that's the kind of stuff that I can't wait to watch as soon as we release Dimension 404. <laughs> well, thank you so much for talking with us about Dimension 404. We're really looking forward to getting to see the next three episodes. And uh, it's really kind of hitting on a lot of hallmarks of nostalgia as well as, you know, digital age type hallmarks. So thank you so much for sharing your thoughts about the show with us today. Anytime, you guys. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Okay, and that was a great interview because we were only given the first three episodes as screeners, and the next three, episodes four, five, and six, will be doled out 
on April 11th, April 18th, and April 25th. So I'm really looking forward to see what else this show has to offer because every episode's different. It's a brand new story each week. Yeah, and you've seen the third. I still haven't seen the third one yet. And and you told me that may be the best of the three. Time travel. Can't go wrong. (laughs) They do a really great job of it. So yeah, definitely if you have access to Hulu, check it out. Uh, And we are very grateful that Des Dolly took the time to, to speak with us about the show. But wow, what a great episode. I really enjoyed talking about all our different topics. But that's going to be it for this edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. You can certainly keep it going all month long by following us on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter as Sci-Fi Fidelity. And in May, we're going to be discussing Season 3 of Lucifer on Fox and the series premiere of American Gods on Stars. But in the meantime, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you access it, whether it's on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Plus, we take suggestions for future topics. Just let us know on social media what you'd like us to talk about. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next month. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.